it's the number one public health epidemic, right? That means it is the number one cause of mortality and morbidity in the world. Um, it's the most costly health condition that we take care of as a healthcare system. And to put a frame of reference, you're right. People talk about cancer prevention and, and that's an admirable goal, like, uh, no doubt. But there are actually 40% more cardiovascular deaths than all cancers combined. Like, I mean, that's how big this epidemic is. To put it in the context of a gender, a woman has a threefold increased risk of having dying from a heart attack and cardiovascular disease than dying of breast cancer. In 2020, there were twofold more cardiovascular deaths in the world than deaths from COVID-19. That's how big this epidemic is. And now, from San Francisco and the UCSF Rosenman Institute, the Health Technology Podcast with your host, Christine Winotto. Do you know what is the number one cause of death in the world? Well, if you didn't, now you do. It is heart disease. I'm so glad people like our guest today are working to change that. James Min is the founder and CEO of Clearly. There, he creates digital care pathways to prevent cardiovascular disease and heart attacks before they happen. Before Clearly, James served in a number of high-profile cardiology positions. James has published more than 500 peer-reviewed manuscripts with a focus on coronary artery disease. He has also received numerous awards and distinctions, including recently being inducted into the American Society of Clinical Investigation and the Academy of Radiology Research. And he's got some interesting life lessons too. Here's our conversation. Well, thanks, James. Great seeing you again. I'm so looking forward to our conversation today. Uh, Thanks so much for having me, Christine. It's a pleasure to be here and I look forward to it as well. Yeah, so I thought it would be good to uh, for a lot of our listeners to hear a bit about your journey, your story, how you end up starting this clearly, what's the genesis of it, and how you get there. Yeah, it's a great question. Like, um, you know, in hindsight, it was just sort of a natural extension and sort of like what what in in hindsight just looked like the next step forward. Like, you know, it sort of dates back about 20 years. I trained as a cardiology fellow at the University of Chicago and I took a job at Cornell Medical College in New York Presbyterian Hospital on the Upper East Side of Manhattan in 2005. I worked there for about maybe 15 years or so. And there, what we had really focused on was two things. The first was um, we stood up a cardiovascular disease prevention program called Heart Health. And that was a really popular program. And our differentiating factor was that we would utilize patients' uh, images using non-invasive CT scans of their heart to really fully characterize the disease process that was going on within the walls of their arteries in a silent way over decades. And we'd leverage all of that information to really take better care of patients, to get them on the right therapies, and then to reduce heart attacks over time. It was a very manual process. um, And, you know, we had the luxury of doing a number of clinical trials to better understand the vascular biology. And once we understood that biology and incorporated it into our own program, We wanted to be able to disseminate those tools to everybody so that anyone could use it. And we realized that like the eight hours that it was taking us to analyze a single patient's images were never going to be able to scale. So we started clearly, 
um, to automate and standardize the process of coronary heart disease evaluations so that we could prevent heart attacks. So that's sort of how I ended up at Clearly. We started a company in 2017, and I left my uh, my job at Cornell about two, two and a half years afterwards to join the company full time. So maybe that's a good time for you to uh, tell us what is Clearly, what is the technology, what is what is the trying to do to achieve? Yeah, it's a great question as well. Like, um, So what we've developed is a digital care pathway um, to really standardize and personalize um, assessment, um, education, treatment, and tracking of heart disease. And the thesis behind clearly is that if you look back at the way that we as heart doctors have taken care of people for the last 60, 70 years, heart doctors have actually never measured heart disease, which I know sounds sort of ironic, but it's true. Like if you think about what you do when you go see your cardiologist, then they, we check your cholesterol and your other risk factors. Those aren't heart disease, right? They're, they're surrogate markers or indirect markers of heart disease. And then what we typically have told people is, hey, why don't you go home and come back if you have any uh, symptoms of chest pain or shortness of breath? And that's not heart disease either, right? Those are signs of disease rather than the disease itself. And then we've used stress tests where we put people on treadmills or bicycles and take pictures of their heart while they're exercising as an indirect marker of what's called ischemia or reduced blood flow in the heart muscle. Also not heart disease. That's a consequence or a sequel of heart disease. So we've been very good at looking at surrogates of heart disease, signs of heart disease, and sequelae of heart disease. But we never actually directly measured the disease itself which is the atherosclerosis or the plaque buildup um, within the walls of the heart arteries. So clearly, thesis is that it's better to measure disease rather than to measure indirect markers of disease. So we leverage a a tool called a non-invasive coronary CT scan, and it's the only non-invasive tool that we have that allows you to do whole heart assessment of all of the arteries in the heart and their branches and the types of plaque and the amount of plaque that's building up within the walls of the artery. And what we found was that in our prior life, um, as we were doing the clinical trials, that there are very there are many different types of atherosclerosis, and some of them are the the most potent predictors of future heart attacks, and others are very stable and associated with a very low risk of heart attacks. We also found that like if you treat somebody with a medication or with um, a favorable diet or um, or exercise and physical activity, what happens is that you transform the type of plaque from a more unstable phenotype into a more stable phenotype. So all of that we do at Clearly as the first step of the pathway where we've developed a series of machine-learned algorithms that can process these scans in a way that a human can't in order to really get this quantitative information about the type of disease and the burden of disease that somebody has um, and measuring actual disease rather than indirect markers. We also found that when we were taking care of um, reading images at Cornell and New York Presbyterian that there was this problem. We'd call our friends in the office and explain what we were seeing, and it was like, They didn't understand the advanced imaging science because they weren't imagers. And so we realized that we were doing a very poor job of handing off that information to the clinicians, whether it's the general cardiologist or the primary care physician or advanced practice providers. So what we have done at Clearly is created a second software platform that specifically translates advanced imaging science into clinical insights that really any clinician and healthcare professional can understand. And then the third step of that care pathway is like when we were taking care of patients in the office, we would utilize the images to educate them and show them their actual disease. That was very empowering to them because what we said was like, until you've had a heart attack, nothing bad has happened. 
We just need to figure out what is your current state and prevent that heart attack from happening. They love the, the interaction and seeing their actual images and understanding it better. But when we would give them the radiology report to go home with, they're like, I don't understand anything on this sheet. They were very frustrated by that interaction. And so what we do is we've developed patient-facing tools that really translate all of this complex medicine and healthcare into concepts that can be understood by any lay person. So that was very helpful. And then we've um, we've done a collaboration with the American College of Cardiology where we have um, determined algorithms to actually treat disease rather than treating indirect markers of disease like cholesterol. And finally, because we understand sort of the good changes in plaque and the bad changes in plaque, um, our software platform allows for quantitative disease tracking over time to make sure that the therapies that we're delivering to people are actually working, that their lifestyle interventions, diet and exercise are actually helping. And if not, then we know to intensify the therapy accordingly. So sort of like a personalized roadmap of your heart so that we understand your care over time and, mm-hmm. um, and then keep people healthy. So that's sort of the thesis behind the digital care pathway. That's really interesting. It fits like almost, almost like a kind of a complete path to have a healthier cardiovascular. You mentioned earlier that you do a lot of this work for your patient when you're at Cornell, but you do it manually. So is that something that only certain people who get that access because there's only one, you know, it takes eight hours to do it. With your technology, hopefully more people have the access that you had if you have that specialized. Yeah, that's exactly why we developed the company. Like we we had the luxury of being supported by a very generous donor and philanthropist. And so we had the resources to be able to have a cadre of about 20 core lab technologists just doing manual um, evaluations of images. That was never going to scale. And then the problem with that is that we completely missed not only the entire field that doesn't have the, didn't have the luxuries of, sort of the um, the gifts that we were lucky enough to receive. But we also, like, we can never get it to the underrepresented um, populations that we've typically um, done a very poor job, I think, as a field um, identifying. And so those underrepresented populations uh, are a large target for our company because we really want to focus on them the way that we focused on on others before. So diversity, equity, inclusion is a very strong theme that pervades our company so that we can democratize the care in a way that everybody gets the same high-quality, standardized, and accurate um, diagnoses, tracking, education, treatment, and so on. Yeah, one of the things, as we all know, heart uh, attack is one in every four deaths in this country. And I think I felt at the same time, people talk a lot about it, but at the same time, people talk a lot about cancer. But I think heart disease is still number one. And definitely people always say that you exercise well, you eat healthy, check your cholesterol, your cholesterol is good, then you won't have the heart attack. And it's not always true. I mean, I definitely experienced it firsthand. And can you tell us more how your technology would change how we look at how patients are being treated? Absolutely. Like, uh, yeah, I completely agree with um, some of the, the facts that you've just stated. Like for your audience, like um, it's the number one public health epidemic, right? That means it is the number one cause of mortality and morbidity in the world. Um, it's the most costly 
health condition that we take care of as a healthcare system. And to put a frame of reference, you're right. People talk about cancer prevention and, and that's an admirable goal, like, uh, no doubt. But there are actually 40% more cardiovascular deaths than all cancers combined. Like, I mean, that's how big this epidemic is. To put it in the context of a gender, a woman has a threefold increased risk of having dying from a heart attack and cardiovascular disease than dying of breast cancer. Somehow we have forgotten that, or it's some been, uh, no, I think somehow we've become inured to that, right? Where, yeah, everybody knows somebody who went for a run and never came back or went to sleep and never woke up. And somehow it's been more accepting than like it should be. We should be, you know, we should be passionate about trying to eradicate this disease. And we can, like we have enough therapies on the face of this earth to eradicate it. Like just another statistic for you, in 2020, there were twofold more cardiovascular deaths in the world than deaths from COVID-19. That's how big this epidemic is. And so we really just need to tackle it. How can we tackle it? Well, if you looked at the curves, like we've done really good. Um, the field of cardiology, cardiovascular medicine has reduced heart attacks over the past 20, 20 years, two decades or so. But in the last couple of years, we've completely flattened out. We're no longer making the headway. And I'm convinced, I, I, I think we know the reason why. We wait, we have a symptom-driven care paradigm where we say, you know, we'll evaluate you when you have chest pain or shortness of breath. It turns out more than half of the people who have heart attacks never have a symptom before they are event. They just die. And so we will never actually um, help those people and reduce heart attacks to, you know, a minimal degree if we don't start going upstream and really doing precision heart care, personalizing um, the medicine, because this plaque builds up in your arteries over time and decades, and in most cases doesn't cause symptoms. So we have to find it, treat it, prevent it. And I think the only way to do that is to really personalize the care, individualize it by understanding their disease process. Yeah, I mean, I share with you my personal experience. Uh, My late husband died of heart attack. He had the widow maker. He never had any symptoms, never has any chest pain, shortness of breath. He's always very active. He's not taking any cholesterol medicine. So because his cholesterol was fine, no high blood pressure medication because high blood pressure was fine. And yet with the first time he had the symptom, he died. Yeah. And I mean, it's such a tragedy, like um, your husband's case. And I think what's even more tragic is that he doesn't represent the outlier. He represents the majority. Like the, he represents literally more than 50% of the people who will die of heart attacks. So I, I couldn't agree with you more, Christine. We just have to get upstream of this from where we've been, waiting for people to come in with late stage symptoms and chest pain and, you know, and um, shortness of breath. It's sort of like the oncologic analog of waiting for people to come in with metastatic cancer before you start treating them. It just doesn't make any sense at all. Like, and if we wonder why it's such a costly, um, condition to the healthcare system. It's because one, it's heavily prevalent, but two, we're taking care of late stage or end stage disease, not getting out in front of this before, you know, when it can be treated very simply with medications and lifestyle intervention. This podcast is sponsored by Brown Rutnick's Global Life Sciences Group, a team of legal professionals that help life science companies, lenders, and investors around the world turn good science into good business. Learn more at brownrudnick.com. This podcast is also sponsored by Canon Quality Group. Canon Quality Group has been helping medtech startups set up quality management systems for over 10 years. If you're unsure when to get started with quality management in your startup, 
turn to the experts at canonqualitygroup.com. And how do you change how a physician look at this new technology, new platform, uh, change how they treat patient and see patient who come in with no symptoms? Yeah, I think that it's a great question. Like, I mean, there's, I, I think there's a number of different inputs that can help um, sort of shift the care paradigm. Um, and they're many fold, right? Like, I mean, there's an education, um, there's a scientific evidence, like all of the things that we have developed here at Clearly were founded on the science that like we understood to be true based on the clinical trials that we had performed when I was at Cornell and, and New York Presbyterian. So like strong roots in, in true scientific evidence in vascular biology, helping people to understand that, giving them tools that allow them to do it uh, with a user experience that is quick, uh, rapid and accurate. I think that's important. Financial alignments, right? Like where, you know, the, um, the practitioner may uh, be habituated to do something a certain way. And then if this disrupts that model, that that, that would be uh, disruptive to their workflow and they, they would have difficulty adopting it. Policy and guidelines, um, I think, are going to be important, too. So, you know, we will never stop doing science. Like, we are incessantly focused on clinical evidence generation and best understanding the vascular biology to take care of patients. In doing so, we'll try to help influence by education, um, by providing the evidence that can support guidelines and policy recommendations as well. And so it's interesting sometimes, uh, I mean, I'm referring back to my experience with my husband and I always joke that he never took that, you know, his cost of healthcare is so low throughout his life. Even until the day he died, he did not have uh, the need of healthcare much, except once a year, $20 could pay. And I was wondering about, you know, what's the incentive, um, of course, me being cynic, um, as a payers to try to solve this problem because, you know, it's, it actually doesn't cost that much to treat people like him. Uh, but I noticed that you also have a, a partnership with company like Cigna. So I'm just trying to understand like what's, you know, you know, why do you think that your technology is something that's important for their patient population? So from a clinical standpoint, like um, I, th- I think that we want to prevent the deaths, right? And we want to prevent the catastrophic events. Unfortunately, like, you know, some people who suffer heart attacks, like, it's truly catastrophic where they're, you know, we work with an executive advisor at our company who um, had to have a heart transplant about six years ago after having a massive heart attack. All of these very end stage treatments like ECMO and left ventricular assist devices and intraatic balloon pumps and ICU stays, like it's so costly to the healthcare system. And it can, and what we know is we've got generic medications that can significantly reduce heart attacks if we treat the right people and identify the disease first. So where we think that we fit best really is in value-based healthcare delivery models, where if you think for, you know, we're, we're solidly in the middle of a transition in primary care uh, from fee-for-service to value-based care. And we're just starting to see um, the the companies start to emerge on subspecialty-based, value-based healthcare initiatives. That's where we, I think, fit best. And if you will, just for your listeners, like just to make it like very simple, maybe overly simplistic, but I think that in fee-for-service, you get paid for what you do. In value-based healthcare, you get paid for preventing downstream 
um, significant complications from disease, it's always cheaper to prevent than it is to treat end-stage disease. So I think that's where some of our partnerships with Cigna, um, who was um, generous enough to be a, uh, an investor in our last round, um, can have can form a very strong relationship. Yeah, and I think it's um, it's interesting. Um, I felt what I noticed uh, when my husband passed away. People who don't know him or never met him, the first question they always ask uh, was he healthy? Did he was did he eat well? Did he exercise? And then when we did the his uh, autopsy, he's like ninety five percent arteriosclerosis everywhere wow. and wow. did not get picked up by any of the e- EKG or cholesterol. And so I'm, I'm very excited for your technology. And can you, uh, how many patients have you s- had data for? Do you see the outcomes that you can prove that this is really going to change how we treat healthcare for people with cardiovascular diseases? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll answer that question in two ways. The first is to go back to, you know, the evaluation of, of your husband. Like when we think about, you know, victims like that, what we try to think of it is in the context of looking around healthcare, what are the most successful preventive care paradigms? And if you look, they're all in cancer uh, mortality prevention, whether we use mammography um, to look for early signs of breast cancer or colonoscopy to look for early signs of colon cancer or high-resolution, resolu- high low-dose lung CT scans uh, to try to prevent cancer, lung cancer mortality. If you think about it, they all did the same five things. The first is they start with advanced imaging to look at the actual disease, not indirect markers of disease. But then they stage the presence, the extent, the severity of disease. And the most important thing they do is they classify the type of disease so they know how to personalize the therapy to that disease type. And then the last step of that care pathway is they do the advanced imaging again to make sure their therapies are working. That paradigm works. And so we need to develop the evidence base to support a a paradigm like that in in cardiovascular uh, care. So I, I don't know if that addresses your question to some extent, Christine. Yeah, yeah, no, I think it does. And I think uh, for the past uh, decades or so, more than, uh, there's a lot of technology to kind of treat patients with symptoms with a heart disease, but not identifying them before and then do something about it. Exactly. And I think it happens that with that way and a lot. Like there is a another condition, cardiovascular condition called aortic stenosis, where the the, the valve of the aorta uh, gets calcified and can't open up. It causes people symptoms. But by the time they have symptoms, the heart muscle has completely fibrosed and become permanently damaged. And so I think a preventive care strategy will make people live longer, make them live healthier, and it will ultimately reduce costs to the overall healthcare system. So that is that is our goal. It's sort of the triple or quadruple aim of any population-based value healthcare initiative. But uh, certainly, I think it resonates very strongly here in this condition of coronary heart disease. Yeah, and I think most people don't realize, I uh, I think the number is that more than 50% people who are diagnosed with uh, coronary artery disease, that, uh, they have the first time they got diagnosed is when they have the heart attack and die. Exactly. It's kind of crazy. It's truly crazy. I mean, and what we used to tell the patients in the office was like, you just don't know until you, until you look and we need advanced imaging to take a look. 
I mean, there are times I can tell you of people you would totally expect to be healthy, but you find them to be extremely, extremely diseased. And then others who, you know, have every cardiovascular risk factor, they're older and they smoke and they're obese and they're, they have diabetes and they don't have any disease at all. Like, I I know. And it's just like from a population based standpoint, yeah, a million people over here on the left and a million people over here on the right, these indirect markers can distinguish those populations at risk. But within the million people, they can't pinpoint the individual at risk. And that's what we're trying to do is introduce a new concept of personalized cardiology care. Yeah, I mean, I definitely, I know I'm not, um, I should, I'm not, rec- I'm not recommending for people not to exercise, not to eat healthy, but it changed how I view about I eat healthy and exercise because I just want to feel good, but not so much about prevent heart disease, at yeah. least from my point of view. Um, so, but I'm so excited uh, to, to get your product to benefit more people, but maybe shift a little bit to um, more about your lesson learned because you came from the academia, being a doctor and then running a company. What are the few things that you learned running a company that you did not know before you got into it? Uh, that's a great question. I'll start with this. Like, I think that this whole concept of cross-functional collaboration doesn't exist that well in a traditional academic medicine, right? In academic medicine, it's a sort of the analogy that I'll give you is that it's like singles tennis, right? You may have a large group, a large lab, but ultimately it's one decision maker and you sort of go in that direction. In contrast, like the way that I see a, a company building process is it's like um, it's a team sport. It's a hockey team. Like when you see five people skating down the rink, they know exactly where each other is going to be in two seconds, in five seconds, in 10 seconds. And it's just a thing of beauty to watch, right? Because they're so in sync with each other. And that whole concept of of it takes a village, cross-functional collaboration, whatever you do to create that sort of team mentality where everybody knows their role, everybody knows what other people are doing. So I think that that, that team effort is something that I found to be so rewarding and coming and working alongside people with very different skill sets that I would never have in my life and that I can contribute my portion, they can contribute theirs, and we all work as a team towards this common mission and, and, and goal. Like I think that was the biggest sort of change between my old career and this one, um, but one that I found to be extremely rewarding. It's almost like in the, the when you're in academia running your own lab, almost like you kind of sort of mini dictator. <laughs> And then running a company uh, in order to create a thriving environment, you can't be a dictator. And Yeah, I think it's the difference between autocracy and a democracy or a meritocracy. So like, um, definitely, it's, uh, it's different between that. The other thing I, I think we realized um, was that, you know, when we were in academics, you would do a study, you'd publish a paper, and then you present the findings. And you thought that that was the, the job was done. And for, for academics, that was. The intent of the clinical trials was to try to influence clinical practice guidelines and whatnot. If you want to make a product out of that, you're not even 1% there, right? There's so much there that has to go into it, whether it's regulatory, whether it's quality, whether it's user experience, whether it's software engineering, data science. So it's, it's just been, it's been a lot of fun to learn new fields. And, um, you know, again, I have the, uh, the extreme fortune and privilege to be surrounded by a team of people that I, I really gel with and um, hopefully we can change the world together. 
So last question. I know we are running out of time here. What is your top advice that you can give for somebody who is a clinical faculty or clinician who are interested in bringing their technology that they work on into commercialization? Yeah, um, I think that's a, a great question, Christine. I think maybe the biggest advice that I could bring is like, you know, just ask yourself if that's what you want, right? Like, I think that there's there's a certain amount of romanticism associated with startups from the outside. But the day-to-day of it is that it's the hardest thing that I've ever done. And it's just a really, really hard process to try to build a company. And so just, I think as an academician, um, you have to ask yourself, is that where I want to contribute? Or do I want to contribute to a company building process that gets products and services to the world, uh, which is a very different goal, right? Like, and both of them are sort of fueled by a mission um, of healthcare, but with very, very different tasks. And I see that some people really enjoy the task of company building. Others really enjoy the task of, you know, developing and innovating new science. And sometimes they're they're intermixed and sometimes they're mutually exclusive. So I think that's the one thing. I think maybe a second thing is like, just make sure that if you if you have a technology that you believe is disruptive, make sure that it's disruptive. Like it's just as hard to build a company on a crummy product as it is to build a company on a great product. So uh, just make sure that it's a question that's worth asking and a problem worth solving. And probably for the majority of your listeners, it is a problem worth solving. And then I think it goes back to the first question of, you know, where can I contribute greatest? And in my mind, like what we had done for 15 years at Cornell was we took care of patients. We did the clinical trials to help influence the guidelines and understand the vascular biology. And what the second half of my career is really to try to develop a comprehensive portfolio of products that can standardize and improve healthcare, um, and then to try to do the science to influence policy so that we can get all of these people identified early when we can prevent heart attacks. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for all your work. And it's been really my pleasure to... Uh, share your story, your technology with all our listeners. Christine, thanks so much for having me. It was an honor to be here. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Health Technology Podcast. We want to thank our executive producer, Herminio Neto, and our podcast engineer, Andrew Rojek. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to subscribe and leave a review. The Health Technology Podcast is available on all major platforms.